Shalom, this is Rabbi Thomas Davis Hart from Beth Elohim Messianic Synagogue bringing you commentary on Hadashah number 34. This is Bamidbar. This is the fourth book of the Torah. I'm going to try to catch up on a few of the Padashot commentaries here. Uh, if there's one you would like that I haven't done and you would like me to comment on it, uh, just send me uh, an email at the link, Ask the Rabbi, on our website at rabdavis.org, and I'll be happy to do that. So we begin our study this week in the fourth book of the Torah, which recounts significant events of the Israelite travels from Sinai, God's mountain, to the plains of Moab, which are just opposite of the Promised Land. Now we can immediately establish a connection between good and evil simply by looking at the comparison between Sinai where the commands of God were given, and to where God descended to speak to Moshe, and the idolatrous nation of Moab on the opposite side, a nation that was condemned by God for their idolatrous worship and sexual immorality. The Moabites were descendants of Lot through the sexual intercourse between Lot and his oldest daughter. Balak was also a descendant of Lot. These facts are brought to the fore to remind us that Lot was not an Israelite in the true sense of the word. He was a nephew of Abraham, who chose to follow Abraham out and away from his kinsmen in Ur, who were Mesopotamians, an idolatrous nation. Abraham was separated out as righteous because he sought the one true God over his traditional upbringing. We have no evidence that Lot followed suit, although God pulled him out of Sodom before destroying it. So we have Sinai on one side and Moab on the other, complete opposites. Now there's a traditional teaching or thought that Lot started out as respecting his uncle a great deal and wanted to follow him into the unknown. Um, but as time went on, as we often say familiarity breeds contempt, that he became um, more disrespectful of his uncle and even selfish when it came to deciding which part of the land or which direction uh, in which he would go when given a choice by his uncle. The book of Numbers continues the story of Exodus and continues through Leviticus, telling of the escape from Egyptian servitude, the desert journey to Mount Sinai, the events at Sinai with the giving of the laws of God, and the building instructions for the tabernacle and instructions on its operation. These laws, by the way, have not been abrogated. They were not abrogated when Yeshua, who is God, was nailed to the execution stake. That's a whole other teaching, but I wanted to mention it here. There's some confusion about the name of the book of Numbers when the Hebrew name is Bamidbar, which means in the wilderness of Sinai, taken from the fifth word in the first chapter. And this name reflects the theme of the book. The English name Numbers comes from the Greek translation, the Septuagint, which titled the book after the census is described in the first four chapters. The Greek name reflects back on an earlier Hebrew name for the book, when the names were based on themes rather than specific words. The book of Numbers opens with the Israelites still camped at the base of Mount Sinai. They had already been given the laws, constructed the tabernacle, which was portable, and had been instructed on how and when to worship God. We have to do it his way. Man has always thought he's had a better way, a different way, and every time they follow that way, they fail. That's proven throughout history, and it will continue to be so. People need to follow God, his instructions for worship, when and how. So this included the sacrificial system and the procedures for priests and lay people. 
Now they had to organize a mobile war camp before moving forward with their travels. Chapter 1 begins with a census, the purpose of which is to determine tax revenue potential and the strength of the force. All males 20 years and older were eligible. The census totaled 603,550. 603,550. Heading the list of chieftains is the representative of Reuven, Jacob's firstborn son, though elsewhere in Numbers, Judah is typically listed first. This list follows birth order and mother's status to some degree. Leah's sons come first, followed by Rachel's, then the concubine's children last. The exception is Gad, who was a larger military power, replaced third-born Levi, whose priestly tribe were not designated to serve in the military. There's a long narrative describing the Levitical duties continued in chapters 3 and 4. The Levites were charged with guarding the tabernacle, dismantling and reconstructing it when the clouds settled, indicating camp was to be set up once again. Accordingly, their position in the layout of the nation was closest to the tabernacle. According to a rabbinic midrash, the Levites were given such a prestigious position and duties because they were the only tribe that remained loyal to God in the incident of the golden calf. This may be so. I won't argue against it. Each clan encamped in its own designated spot, 3,000 feet from the tabernacle with the Levites within an inner circle. The tribe of Judah faced east toward the sunrise, ready to march first. This does not mean they worship toward the east, as we already know the sequence of furniture in the tabernacle progressed toward most holy from east to west. The tribe of Judah had the greatest census of all the tribes at 74,600. Another new development in the structure and function of the various tribes is that God assigned the Levi to Aharon as the high priest and his sons. No longer would the firstborn sons perform the religious functions for the households. Now Kohanim, assisted by Levites, perform religious functions for the entire nation. Only Aharon and his sons, Eleazar, Itamar, are Kohanim. All other Levites are formally given over, in a sense, to the Kohanim in place of the firstborns. Aharon and who his sons had to guard their priesthood carefully. Any non-priest who tried to encroach would die. And this feeds into a message I gave recently called Bloom Where You're Planted. We need to be content and even happy in the role God gives us for our lives because it's all about Him. It's not about us. It is for our utmost best because He cares for us. But ultimately, it's for his glory to make his name known among the nations. So we need to quit whining about where we're working and be happy that we have a job and do it knowing that we're doing it for God's glory. So this is a stark reminder. We all have a role, as I said, to fulfill for God, and we best not envy that of another or neglect the opportunities of the role we're given. There's no such thing as an insignificant role in life when it comes to serving God. We are all valuable in his eyes. We need to straighten up and fly right. Additional roles were designated for the Levites and the Levitical descendants of Kahat from 30. And the leaders of Kahat from 30 to 50 years of age. These individuals served in the tent of meeting. They were to carry the holy things after they were carefully wrapped by Aharon and his sons. However, they were not to touch the holy things or even look upon them lest they die. 
As we can see, their role was very specific and no less important in managing the transport of the holy things. The duties of the Gershonite and Merorite clans are described in Padishah 35, and that will be addressed uh, following this one. Marhaf draws out of Hosea 2.1 through 2.22. Hosea, or Hosea, prophesies about Israel's faithlessness, whoring and bringing disgrace to God's name, much as the United States is doing today. We had better read biblical history because it's happening again. And God promised that it would be so if we continue to rebel against his Torah. Verses 3 through 15 describe in great detail what Israel will have to endure as a result of her own sin. Not unlike that, as I said, being committed in the United States as a country that was so blessed by God. America has not only brought disgrace to God's name, but they and the world have removed God as the ultimate authority and provider of all things from his rightful place. God has been replaced with idols of all sorts, man's so-called wisdom, secular humanism, and an ever-growing worship of foreign gods such as Ishtar, Moloch, and Baal. Although Hosea gives reference to Israel, there is a direct prophetic connection between the sins of Israel at the time and that which is currently occurring in the world, and specifically the United States today. Fortunately, there is hope as described in verses 16 through 25. And just as not all Israel will be saved, as Israel is thought to be, all Christians will not be saved. All those who profess the quote-unquote name of Jesus will not be saved. God makes it very clear what it takes to be saved. Carrying the testimony of Yeshua and guarding the commands of Hashem. That's listed seven times in the book of Revelation in different words, but the same meaning. John chapters, uh, John chapter 14, Romans chapters 1 through 3. And that narrative indicates there is no excuse for us not to know God. There is hope, as described in verses 16 through 25. God will woo her as he takes her into the desert and will take her as his bride once again. It is not the church. We're not talking church replacement theology that's taught in Christianity today. Israel was not replaced by Christians or the Christian church. The disciples were not taught Christianity and Paul was not converted to a Christian. He was a rabbinic Jew converted to Messianic Judaism. That is the faith of our Lord and what he taught his people and what credible Torah teachers, and I'm talking God's Torah, not oral Torah, teach today. He will take Israel as his people once again, and he will be there in our God. When it talks about all Israel being saved in the Bible, it's defining Israel as the true believers, those who he has found to be true believers, Jew or Gentile. But there are specific criteria that cannot be modified to match what we think should be our way. So how can this be that he takes her as a bride once again when a man is prohibited from marrying the same woman twice? In this case, it's permitted because God did not divorce Judah, that's the southern kingdom of Israel, although she too sinned terribly. He divorced Israel, which are the ten northern tribes that became not a people because of their sin. Although God cannot marry Israel twice by his own regulations, Yeshua, as the son component of the complex unity of God, not a trinity, can and will take Israel, true believers 
as his bride is described in the book of Revelation. Note that Israel wears white robes which signify repentance. Nothing is free, including salvation. Salvation is not free. The plan of salvation follows the process, not an instantaneous once saved, always saved ideology. It follows the process of the Jewish wedding perfectly. You want to know how the plan of salvation progresses? In easier terms, if you will, look at the process of a Jewish wedding. Yeshua, as quote-unquote son, is now in his father's house, preparing the marital home for his bride. And again, that's all true believers have been grafted into one stick, according to Ezekiel chapter 37. And will return on an unknown day and time to take her to his father's house for eternity. For more information on the process of a Jewish wedding, again, visit our site at rabdavis.org and take a look. Our Brit Kadesha is out of 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 31. Around this time, and I'm quoting here, Emperor Augustus issued an order for a census to be taken throughout the empire. This registration, the first of its kind, took place when Quirinius was governing Assyria. Everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. So Yosef, because he was a descendant of David, went up from the town of Nazareth in Galil to the town of David called Bethlehem in Yehuda to be registered with Miriam to whom he was engaged and who was pregnant while they were there the time came for her to give birth and she gave birth to her first child a son she wrapped him in a cloth and laid him down in a feeding trough because there was no space for them at the end unquote this is not a Christmas story he was not born at Christmas he was conceived during Hanukkah and he was born during the feast time of the Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Sukkot. That means God's provision, booths, God's provision, shelter. That's exactly who he is and what he is. Now, Augustus is a title with overtones of divinity given by the Roman Senate in 27 BCE to Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus, founder of the Roman Empire. He ruled the Mediterranean world until 14 CE. There's also a historical problem because according to Tacitus and others, Quirinius did not begin governing in Syria until 6 CE, but he was in charge of Syria's defense and foreign policy under Varus around 7 BCE and later. So he could have supervised the registration for tax purposes in Herod's territory. This registration, the first of its kind, or this first registration before the better known one of 6 CE, referred to in Acts 5.37. Now, addressing 1 Corinthian scriptures for this Padishah, we see consistency in God's Torah again through the assignment of various roles for the different Levite clans and the unity of believers in Messiah Yeshua. We all have our places, our roles in making God's name known and glorifying slash serving him. Our role in God's plan as believers is perfect and we should not envy or cover the roles of other believers. God's purpose for placing us in different environments with different skills and talents, different jobs, some of which may change frequently or not, is to build up the entire body of believers that we may further the gospel of the kingdom. We can do nothing on our own, owing every talent and or skill to God's grace. What is God's will for us? 
follow his Torah and it will be known to you through the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. Shabbat Shalom.